Well, good morning, everyone. It is really a, a joy to be here with you today. I could tell there were a few of you that were confused when uh, they were saying at the start that our guest speaker today is Chris Backer. And um, I can tell you, you're not the only person confused about that. Uh, I can't tell you how many times in the last uh, three or last year and a half, somebody has called me and said, hey, um, I heard that you are now a pastor of a Nazarene church in Harrisburg. And, um, and I said, no, that's the other Chris Backer. Um, and so uh, just, just so you don't forget, right, uh, I know she's been gone for a little while now. Uh, I think I have my slides up here. Um, matter of fact, she texted me this morning. Are they not there? That's your pastor. That's Chris Backert, okay? She says hello from Jerusalem, by the way. And I call her Kristen uh, because we were actually on the same staff team for a number of years for, with Fresh Expressions, and um, it just got confusing uh, as to who was talking to who and if someone called who or left a message for who. And, and this, is, this is me, okay? So... All right, so not that you're confused. So uh, we are really glad to be here with you today. Uh, often I find myself, um, you can come on up there, sweetie, uh, traveling about the country, speaking in different places. So it was really nice this morning to uh, drive 20 minutes uh, to get to be here. We live just down the street from Messiah uh, University. And um, I knew that uh, my, da my daughter, this is my daughter Eliana, she's going to be helping me out a little bit today. And we were actually here uh, for Kristen's first Sunday back in June of, I think, uh, last year. Two, two years ago. Two years ago, yep. Two Junes ago. And, um, and so uh, I said, well, I knew that this would be the kind of place that it would be okay with my daughter helping me out today. So, uh, so we're, we're glad to be with you. Uh, we're actually going to talk today with you about uh, something that's near and dear to our heart is that how do we be the church in an era that uh, is, uh, let me see, in an era in which is so much uh, of the people that we work with, that live in our neighborhoods, that uh, go to school with our kids, who uh, we're on sports teams with, uh, are post-church. How do we be the church in a time where so many people are post-church? And uh, this is one of the things that is, uh, uh, I think, so important for all churches to grapple with, churches like Table Life and every other church that's uh, in the Harrisburg area or around the country. How do we really be the presence of Christ, uh, on the mission of Christ in the time that we live in with such a unique time that we have. So Eliana, though, is actually going to start us off this morning with a story that uh, we heard on the radio a few years ago. It is a story about a businessman from Wisconsin who had to go to New Orleans for a conference. He left Wisconsin and after a few layovers arrived in New Orleans. And when he arrived there, like a good husband, he wanted to email his wife to tell her he had arrived safely. Now, he was planning to email Jen Johnson, J-E-N, at world.net. However, he was running a bit late. It was kind of in a hurry, so he accidentally misspelled the name and instead typed in Jean Johnson, J-E-A-N, at world.net. He didn't catch his mistake and sent the email. Now, Jean Johnson just happened to be the wife of a Nazarene minister who had died three days before. And on this particular day, she had just come home from the funeral, walked into her house, and down at the end of the hall, she saw that the computer was up, and it had a message that said, you've got mail. She went down the hall to check it, 
and promptly fainted. Here is what she read. Honey, I have arrived safely, but it sure is hot down here. I'll see you in a few days. I'll see you in a few days. You see, whatever you think is happening, right, whatever the larger story is that you're living in at every given point in time, it helps to interpret, right, the experiences that we have on a daily basis. You know, for instance, if, if you happen to be somebody who thinks that, you know, that the U.S. is like right on the verge of war with China, then you are very concerned about the happenings of the past couple weeks with balloons being shot down and cylindrical objects in the sky. And if you're not, then you just look at that and think, well, that's kind of amusing that all this stuff is happening right now. See, whatever the larger story is that we are living in, at any point in time, it helps to shape the perspective on kind of what we bring to our life day by day. And that's true in our own lives. It's true in our relationships with other people. And it's also true when it comes to the church. You see, if we don't have the right perspective, the right outlook on really understanding what's happening to the church in our time, then it will be very difficult for us to make wise decisions. Uh, we might make misguided steps. We might not uh, go about things the right way if we don't understand really the time that we're living in. Because we're living in a time in which um, a lot of people, uh, as I said before, are kind of post-church. Uh, you might even see their past church. And uh, this was happening before the pandemic of the last few years, but certainly has been accelerated by the things that have happened in the last few years. And we have to learn to be church in a different era. You see, I think for a lot of people, they experience uh, kind of church in our time sort of like this. Uh, I saw this cartoon a few years ago, right? And uh, most people think, gosh, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to get away, right, from the church. Sometimes our kids and our grandkids are just saying, I'm just trying to get away. And, and, and they have this idea that we're just trying to come after them and capture them in the building. And if we can just get them to come back, then all will be well, right? But... That's, that's the experience that a lot of people have. So what do we do in a time like that which is very different? Because we have moved from a time where for a long time, if you've been around a while and have been part of church life for a while, the gravitational sort of forces of life naturally led people to the doors of our churches, right? When people had kids, they wanted to bring them to the church to, to get baptized or to get christened or dedicated. When uh, people got married. They all thought about having their marriages in, in the church and having a minister involved in their wedding. Um, I think uh, when I was in high school, I very vaguely remember anything happening on Sundays that involved like kids' activities or sports. And now today, like there's lots of things that happen on Sundays. I mean, I remember when I was a kid that even, even most stores didn't open till 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sure some of you remember a time, a time like that. And you see, all of the sort of the things around the, our churches naturally sort of help people kind of have a gravitational pull to the church. But today, when those same things happen, when someone gets sick or someone loses a loved one or it's Christmas or Easter, right, people experience those same things, but those things don't necessarily draw them to the doors of the church any longer. People sort of keep going past where the church stands. They don't come to our doors like they used to. And it sort of changes the focus of what our mission is. Because for a long time, we've always known that our mission has been to make disciples, right? That's what Jesus left us to do. 
But we thought for centuries that what that meant is we have to get people to come to a building like this. And it's great when people come to buildings like this, right? We're all here this morning, right? But so many people are beyond coming to a place like this, at least at the beginning. And so the question is, what do we do as the people of God in a situation like that? Well, I want to look with you this morning at Acts chapter 16, because I believe this passage, uh, though written centuries ago, about something that happened centuries ago, is a timely word that gives us some of the contours and principles for the direction that we need as a people of God today. So I want to ask uh, some questions of, uh, of this text, if you uh, have some notes there in your program, uh, but in Acts chapter 16. Here are the five questions that we want to ask with you this morning. Number one, what was the setting? Right? What's going on in Acts chapter 16 that might inform where we are today? Who were the people? What was their plan? What was the product of their plan? And where did the power come from? All right? So what was the setting? Who were the people? What was their plan? What was the product of their plan? And where did their power come from? So just to give you a little uh, background on this. So most of the second half of the book of Acts really is organized around Paul's uh, three missionary journeys. And uh, of those three missionary journeys, the first two were, were uh, related in the sense that they were examples of Paul going and preaching the gospel in, in new territory. But the third is, uh, is a story of him sort of revisiting where he went on his first two trips or his journey to imprisonment in Rome. So when you look at the first two missionary journeys, though, they are, they are actually quite different. And uh, you see a little picture here if it pops up for me. So the first missionary journey was largely uh, on the right side of, uh, of this picture. Your right, my left. And uh, Paul was going through at that time uh, places that were not exclusively, but primarily to people who already had a knowledge of the God of Israel. Uh, most of them uh, had heard about Jesus in some format, right, in some way. Uh, some of them knew the scriptures of the Old Testament. They were accustomed to going to the religious festivals that uh, were part of the Old Testament uh, Hebrew culture because that was part of the culture they were in. And in our day, this, is, this would be very similar like trying to connect with people who have an idea that they ought to be in church, but they just aren't. They grew up in church. Uh, they may, might still come to church at Christmas and Easter. Uh, and, and these are people who have what we refer to in our world of fresh expressions is uh, they have an inheritance of faith, right? Something has been passed down to them. An inheritance of faith has been passed down to them or an inheritance of church from generation to generation. And um, it's pretty likely that there's a good number of, of us in this room who would identify that way, right? Our, our parents, our grandparents, something has been passed down to us over generations. And, um, and we see this sort of like uh, on display in our culture, week in and week out, even though we don't always realize it. But for instance, if you were to leave right now and just drive about 10 minutes from here, there's a street, right, right across from the state capitol. Anybody know what it's called? Church Street, okay? Right across from the state capitol. Matter of fact, if you go to most states around the country, uh, there's a church street pretty much located right near the state capitol because for a long time, right, the church was such at the like a dominant part of society. And if you were to go down to today, you see there's big, beautiful buildings, right, that were 
built a long time ago, and um, they represent a time that was once uh, true in uh, North America. But then there's the second missionary journey, and the second missionary journey, uh, it's for sake of a, just simplicity, is sort of like the left side of this map, right? This is a journey in which a great deal of Paul's work ends up uh, with people who are uh, not connected to the history of Israel. They don't know the history of Israel. In fact, uh, they are not just interested in one God, they are interested in any number of gods. They're Gentiles. These are folks who do not have a faith inheritance. Or if they do, it's so small and negligible that it has almost no bearing in their lives. And in many ways, it's that missionary journey. It's that story of Paul's experience that speaks to us today. Since it's uh, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, this story came to mind. Some of you might remember 12 or 13 years ago, there was a football player uh, that you probably heard of named Tim Tebow. And uh, Tim Tebow was playing in the national championship game for college football, and he wore uh, a reference to John 3.16 in his eye black uh, for that game. Well, in the next few hours, 94 million people Googled, what did John 3.16 mean? Now, I, I find that striking, that over a decade ago, st- just over a decade ago, that there was still almost 100 million people primarily in the United States who wouldn't understand a reference to John 3.16. In some ways, that's mind-boggling, right? But it represents a culture that is outside of the Christian story. And if you want a visual image of what that means in 2023, if you were to go down to Church Street today, you would see primarily those buildings are very vacant this morning. I bet for the most of them, except for the uh, exception of the Catholic Church, uh, if you were to take all the people that showed up at those buildings this morning, it would be less people than are in this room right now. And that's the culture that we live in. And I think Acts 16 speaks to us very clearly about, uh, gives us a reference point for the time that we live. So if you look with me at Acts chapter 16, I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm not going to read all 40 verses this morning because that would take up most of the time that we have. Uh, but I'll reference a few and, uh, and share the story with you along the way. In verse 1, Paul came to Derby. Uh, he is traveling with Silas from Acts chapter 15. And then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. And Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So the second question that we're asking this morning is, uh, who are the people in this story? And the first two, obviously, are Paul and Silas, right? Paul and Silas. These are the primary leaders on this missionary journey. Uh, And we know a lot about them, right? I mean, there's, uh, you've probably heard Pastor Kristen Uh, preach on something related to Paul multiple times in this past year, just in this past year alone, right? We could have a whole year's worth of sermons just on Paul. But what I want to point out here is in this second missionary journey, our Paul and Silas are both of what nationality? You guys know? They're Jews. Paul and Silas are both Jews. And who are they going to interact with on this trip? They're going to Gentiles. So who do they need on their team in some way? They need some Gentiles, right? They need some people who understand the world that they're going to. So Paul's smart about this. 
And at first stop, he goes recruiting, and he uncovers a talented young leader named Timothy. Now, like Paul, a year's worth of sermons could be given about Timothy. But what's important in this story is that he is a person who is between both sides of this picture. He is a person who is between the Jews and between the Greeks. His father is a Greek, and that would actually have been his primary identity, therefore, in the ancient world. But his mother and his grandmother were both Jews and people of tremendous faith. And so it's critical that Paul and Silas have somebody on their team who is both a Greek, right, who understands the world that they're going to encounter, and he understands the same time the world that they're coming from. He understands the God of Israel, and he understands the world outside of the God of Israel. And so he can relate to those on the outside and to those on the inside, and he can be a translator. In uh, the New Testament term for this kind of person is a person of peace, a person of peace. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes. There's one more person on this team who's not mentioned in in these couple verses here, but as we go down throughout this story, uh, we find out that they're there. Uh, And we know from the language of this text that Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, is on this team, the medical doctor. And unlike uh, Timothy, Luke is a full Greek, right? He's a convert. He's completely on the inside of the Gentile world and on the the outside of the Jewish world. And together, right, they now have the components of a team that can really reach the whole of this picture, but particularly where they're heading on this second missionary journey. So the key question for us this morning is who is on your team? Who's on your team? Who do you have with you moving together on the mission of Christ in our time? My wife, uh, Rachel, uh, her background, uh, and Eliana's mom, is in the area of organizational coaching. And uh, I've had the uh, benefits. You know, we all, when we're married, we get certain benefits by being married to the person that we're married to. And uh, being married to an organizational coach has given me the opportunity to receive lots of coaching over the last 20 years. Uh, Now, my wife tells me that it's purely for her to keep up her skills for her career. Uh, I'm quite certain that a lot of it has been just for me. And I see some ladies laughing and some gentlemen slyly smiling in here because maybe you too have a wife that's a coach and has given you some coaching over the years. But um, a few years ago, uh, she showed our family a video called uh, Lessons from Geese. The video is very cheesy. My dad says it's straight out of the 80s. But the video is all about how geese relate to one another because unlike other birds, geese function as a remarkable team. In fact, in just a month or two, if you start looking up into the sky, you will notice that geese almost always fly together and they fly together in a very particular V formation. When they fly in this V formation, each of the geese wraps up the geese in front of them and it gets easier to fly the more geese you have in front of you. And what this does is it allows a goose flying with other geese to fly 71% further than they could fly alone. But because the goose up in the front bears the greatest force against the winds, it can't stay up there forever. So they rotate in new geese so the one up front gets a break. If you listen, you will notice that they honk at each other And this honking is actually a sign of encouragement. When one of the geese gets sick, two or three others leave the bee and stay with the goose to help protect it. 
Isn't that remarkable, right, that geese function that way? Right, so just in a couple months when you look up at the sky and you see all the geese flying north for the winter, that should remind you, right, who's on my team, right? If geese have a team, right, and if we were at least as smart as geese, which I think we are, if our mission was at least as important as flying south for the winter or north for the summer, we would make sure we have a team. We'd make sure we, uh, we would make a commitment to go through life with others, others here at Table Life, because we know that we can travel further and travel easier, travel more effectively on Christ's mission than we can by ourselves. You know, living out the mission of God as the church in a post-church age is not an easy task. It is much more complicated and difficult and challenging than it was a few decades ago. That's why it's always important when I get the opportunity to remind folks like you, you know, be good to your pastor, right? The job that they're doing is harder than the job that their predecessors did a few decades back. It's a more challenging time, but we need them and they need us. We have to be a team together. So do we have people that can encourage us when we are discouraged? To share our load when our load is heavy. To watch out for us when we are struggling to keep up. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to have a team. And that team is intended to make us stronger to go where the gospel is calling us to go. So the next key question is, uh, what was their plan? What was their plan? Now with this team in place, they continue on their journey with the intention of going to the province of Asia, all right? So if you look back at that map, I'll flip back here one second. They, they, Paul really wanted to go up there to Asia Minor. That's what he wanted to do, all right? But the Holy Spirit kept stopping him, kept blocking his way. Uh, in about verse 6 to 10, on two occasions, the Spirit says, don't go, right, where you want to go. And he thwarts, the Spirit thwarts Paul and the team's efforts, and it says, he says, I want you to go to Macedonia. I want you to go to Macedonia. Now, this is an example uh, in the scripture of something that maybe you've talked about here at Table Life in the past. But it's a, it's a term. It's a Wesleyan term. It's a term that some Nazarenes might be familiar with called provenient grace. Provenient grace. Provenient grace uh, is one of my favorite theological concepts. And uh, it's something unique to folks like Nazarenes. It's God's grace that goes ahead of our actions. It's God's grace that opens up people to the life and the power of the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, it's provenient grace like a good coach from the Holy Spirit saying, go here and don't go here. Because the Spirit knows where the door is being opened and where the door is not opened at the moment. I always think it's funny because Paul says in verse 10, right here, uh, after he had seen a vision, right? Paul gets a vision in the middle of the night, right? God gives him a dream and says, come to Macedonia and help us. And Paul gets up the next morning and concludes, right? God must have called us to go over there, right? Well, if you have a dream and the Holy Spirit shows up and tells you what to do, you should also conclude that that's what you are to do. So part of our job, right, is to be paying attention. We still have to seek we still have to take action. We still have to take steps. We still have to try things. But what we are doing is paying attention to where the Holy Spirit is opening the doors around us. Pay attention to doors of openness. 
And there's two things I want to uh, just make sure we understand about here. That reminds us, right, that the Holy Spirit is ahead of us in this work, in this call of the gospel, and that the Holy Spirit will provide for us revelation, right? The Holy Spirit is ahead of you. The Holy Spirit will provide revelation. So Paul and his team, they go toward Macedonia, and they end up in Philippi, which was the most significant city uh, in that region. You see, Paul's strategy within most of the New Testament is that uh, he would go into a, a, new, a new area, and he would go into the most strategic city in that area because the pattern of the book of Acts shows that if uh, the gospel could be proclaimed and new extensions of the kingdom started in a strategic city in a region, that eventually the whole region would come to be able to interact with the good news of Jesus and the reality of the church. Now, hopefully... You guys realize that table life, you realize that you live in a strategic city, right? You're sitting right in the middle of one right now. Not only is it the state capital, critical decisions are made here, right? I mean, decisions that affect millions of people across the Commonwealth. Not only is it state capital, but it is the hub of transportation and goods from all up and down the East Coast, right? If you have ever driven on 81, you know this for sure. More more. Things pass through this area, right, than any other place, uh, uh, certainly on the East Coast, right? This is a hub. This is also the fastest growing uh, region or county in the state of Pennsylvania. Cumberland County, Dauphin County, number one and two. More people are moving here than any other part of the Commonwealth. You live in a strategic city, and you're an important church in this strategic city. So Paul goes, as the story goes on, to this strategic city. Uh, verse 11, he says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and eventually they get to Philippi, and they got to, uh, to this, this leading city in Macedonia, and they stay there for several days. And in the course of those several days, Paul discovers something. Uh, he discovers that Philippi is not a religious town. It's not a religious town. In fact, there's not even enough Jewish men to have a small synagogue in the town. You had to have at least 10. Uh, and so there's not, elite, there's not enough people to even have a small synagogue in this town. And so Philippi is a town that is not equipped with a culture of an inheritance of faith, right? It's the second missionary journey. And so Paul is outside of his normal pattern of mission and ministry, right? He, his normal pattern, first missionary journey was go to a strategic city, find a synagogue, go into that synagogue, and start teaching. That was what he preferred to do. And why would he do that? Well, because the barriers were lower at the synagogue. Well, you think about it, right? At the synagogue, people were already used to coming to a building, sitting with other people, and hearing someone get up and talk about God. They were used to that. But in Philippi, that wasn't the case. And so what's Paul to do? There's no building, there's no place that people are used to coming to hear a sermon. And so he had to go looking for two things, which we've mentioned already. Number one, places of openness. And number two, people of peace. He had to look for places of openness and people of peace. And here in Philippi, he finds a place of openness uh, down by the river. That's a rendering of modern day, uh, what Philippi, the area that was in now. And uh, he goes and he finds right outside the city a place of prayer uh, down by the river. 
Uh, because in an area where there wasn't a synagogue, where there wasn't enough of a kind of a religious culture, uh, the people who were God-fearers and had a spirituality often gathered to pray by, uh, by bodies of water. And uh, so Paul goes down to this spot right here, this place of prayer for the folks that I'm going to call the spiritual but not religious. The spiritual but not religious. I'm sure you've probably heard that term before. Has anybody ever heard that term, right? Or you know somebody who would describe themselves that way? Yeah. yeah. Some of you might describe yourself that way, right? In fact, surveys tell us that most people in the United States of America would describe themselves like this. And so here in this setting, among the spiritual but not religious, Paul adjusts his method based on the needs of the people. Here in this setting, right, Paul doesn't preach. If you go through the Greek behind the words here in Acts chapter 16, the word for preaching does not show up. You know what the word is that Paul uses here or describes Paul's actions? Conversation, talking, dialogue, discussion, right? He goes to this place and he does just a quite normal thing. He builds a relationship with the people there by just the most normal means of communicating that we use day in and day out on an everyday basis. He goes to people on their turf and talks to them about the life of the gospel. And lo and behold, a woman named Lydia responds. Right? The text says the Lord opened her heart. That's an example of God's provenient grace acting in her life. Because when he arrives and begins to talk, she's open, but she's not convinced. But she becomes convinced because of God's action and because Paul and his team, they did this. They put the gospel close to her life. Right? This is where her life was happening, and they put the gospel close to it. And through this place of openness, right, the place down by the river, they now have found a person of peace. Now, it turns out that Lydia, it says here, if you will look in verse 11 or 14, uh, that Lydia is a dealer in purple. Uh, Lydia is a dealer in purple. And that's a way of describing somebody who who kind of dealt with very high-end fabrics in uh, this time period. Uh, In our day, uh, this would probably be somebody who was kind of a high-end designer uh, in the fashion industry in New York or L.A. That's the kind of place and social standing in this culture that Lydia occupied. She's a member of a high society, and she holds a great deal of influence. Uh, In a time where it wasn't as customary for women to be in business, Lydia is a woman of business. And it says here that as a result of that, that not uh, just her, but her household, the Greek word is oikos, which describes her social network, her network of relationships, right? Uh, This is people who, uh, who follow her, right? Most likely her employees and her clients, They come to receive the revelation of the kingdom through her conversion, and they are also baptized. She's a person of peace. Eventually, Paul and Silas include Lydia in their team, and they adopt her home, which was probably an apartment above her business, as a base of operation in this city. And it is through her life, operating out of that place, that the kingdom begins to take hold in Philippi, and a new expression of the church is born. Now, the way this story is written, you have to pay attention because it seems like these things maybe happen really fast. But this was probably not a fast process, right? 
Because you think about this, uh, Paul and his team, they have at least four single men who are on this journey, right? And Lydia is a single woman and um, in a high society, right? And she, uh, t- uh, how much time do you think it would have convinced her to move, for them to move in with her and to make her home a base of operation, right? I'm sure this took some time, right? So let's summarize here where we are. What was their plan? They paid attention to the Holy Spirit, right? They looked for God's action through his pervenient grace. They find a door of openness outside the church. They do normal things in faith-filled ways. We might call that naturally supernatural or supernaturally natural, right? They're just living their life. They're doing something very normal with the power of the Holy Spirit with them. They look for a person of peace, and when they find a person of peace, they stick with them, right? And through that relationship, because they have influence in their surrounding uh, networks, their household, they form a new expression of church, right? This is a little bit like what you guys are doing by starting a dinner church just down the street here, right? That dinner church, as I understand it from Kristen, is that's trying to reach people who are not likely to show up here on any given Sunday morning, right? And I'm sure there's going to be more things like that over time because because you guys know as a church, and she knows from her experience, that that's the kind of stuff it's going to take to engage people with the gospel today. One of the great things I think that you guys have as a blessing, because many people don't have this as a blessing, is that you have a pastor who came to faith later in life. And I'm sure you've heard her share her testimony, right? But she wasn't someone that grew up with an inheritance of faith. Right? And to have that perspective, she's someone who's, who's like Timothy, right? She understands both uh, sides of the equation and brings that to bear. But that leads us to have a question for you. So where are the doors of openness around you? Who are your people of peace? Because each of you represents the possibility of something like another dinner church as part of the family of table life here in the state capital, this strategic city. Now, with this base of operations said, I want to note uh, three aspects of Paul's plan that just are good for us to remember. Verse 16, it says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, right? So this is after all that stuff has already happened. So they keep going back to the place of prayer, even though they already have a new expression of church that's been birthed in Lydia's house, right? It says the same thing in verse 18. In other words, they didn't stop going back to the place of openness, Once they accomplished their initial goal, right? Because the door was still open. They didn't leave it. They kept going out and looking for more people who were waiting for Jesus to find them. They kept searching. Second, they guided the church to operate both in public spaces and private spaces, right? So they're meeting here, right? And they're meeting in an apartment, most likely, public and private. Right? The church gathers together like this and in other spots in homes, and the church scatters around right, in other parts of our community. But when they scatter, remember the geese? They didn't scatter by themselves. They scattered as a team, even if it was a small one. The next question. So what was the setting? Who were the people? What was their plan? And this question is, what is the product of their plan? In other words, what happened uh, with what they put into this. As Paul and his team worked this plan, we know about the fruit that came from Lydia, right? But now we see, as we get to uh, verse 17, uh, that 
their fruit touches the other end of the social spectrum. In this case, it touches the poor and the enslaved. There is a slave girl who is possessed with a spirit of divination. And, and what that means, basically, she has some kind of supernatural skill to see the future. And she's constantly taunting them day by day. Well, Paul finally gets annoyed at this. It just seems like it frustrates him to the point where he turns, and in a display of supernatural power, which is really important, because what did this girl have? She had a supernatural power. In a display of supernatural power, he cast out the demon, and the slave girl is delivered. This is an example of Paul, just like he met Lydia where she was down by the river, right? In her place of openness, right? He meets this girl where she is. Supernatural power with supernatural power. And the slave girl is delivered. Now this, of course, uh, upsets what uh, today we would refer to as pimps. It frustrates them. Uh, and they are unhappy. And through a series of events, this lands Paul and uh, his team in prison. The prison, though, is run by someone who was not a member of the high society, not a person in the fashion industry like Lydia. It's not run by someone on the margins like this girl who was enslaved, but a hardworking, tough, blue-collar kind of guy, the jailer. This is the kind of guy that we have find in just a few minutes. He's, he's tough. He's not afraid to plunge his own sword into himself when he finds out that the jail has been destroyed. Because while Paul and Silas are in jail, there's an earthquake, right? And the infrastructure of the prison is, is uh, crumbled. And the jailer awakes in the middle of the earthquake, and the text says that he's about to kill himself. Why? Because if... The people above him would have found out that prisoners got out under his watch. They would have killed him. He's about to take his own life, and Paul calls out and says to him, Do yourself no harm. We are still here. And the next thing that happens in the, the course of the sequence of events here is the jailer says, What must I do to be saved? He gives his life to the Lord. And I, I bet you that Pastor Kristen has preached no sermon in the last year and a half, where she ended the sermon with, do yourself no harm, and people came forward in droves to want to give their life to Jesus. Pay attention to what happens here. Why does the jailer want to give his life to the Lord in this moment? Is it because there was a big earthquake, and he just saw the power of God on display? Mm -mm. He was ready to kill himself at the end of the earthquake, right? Is it because Paul was nice to him and reached out and said, do yourself no harm? Mm -mm. That didn't move him. It's because Paul said these words. We are still here. We are still here. That doesn't fit in how we would explain how to give your life to Christ to somebody today. But in that moment, what happens is the Holy Spirit's grace falls on this guy. Because he saw something in the character of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. That showed him this. These men value my life more than they value their own. They could have escaped, but they did not. And they willfully took on difficulty for their own sake, for the sake of someone else entering the kingdom of God. 
They share with him the way in the kingdom, and then it says that he and all of his household, his family, his friends, probably the other people that worked under him in the jail, they all believe and are baptized. And what forms? Another new expression of church. So let me summarize here the fruit of Paul's plan, if you're taking notes. Number one, there is a kingdom transformation in Philippi that cuts across class lines. Upper, middle, lower. The full expanse of the human experience is seeded with the gospel in Philippi. Second, the kingdom breaks out in different means. Lydia, she's most likely the most educated. And of the three, she is won over by relationship and reason. In other words, she needed to be convinced of the gospel. The jailer is won over by sacrifice and experience. In other words, he needed to be shown the gospel. And the slave girl is won over by sheer spiritual force. She needed to be delivered by the gospel. Number three, the kingdom gets concrete in Philippi. Because there are now two new expressions of church. One at Lydia's house and one at the jailer's. And the gospel is now breaking out into at least three different kinds of places we know. At home, at work, and in public places. And all these things happen here. The transformation across class through different means and the establishment of new expressions of church in different places because this team of people put the church closer to the lives of people that it never mattered if they went to church or in their case, the synagogue. They took the church closer to where people lived their life. And I think that's what you guys are doing here at Table Life, right? We're trying to put the gospel closer to where people live. We're trying to put the church closer to where people live. And that way that it doesn't matter if they don't come to church ever or at first or if they're post-church or past church because they can't stop the church when the church goes to them. Last question. Even though there was a great team and they had a smart plan and God showed fruit through that plan, why did this fruit come? It came because they were operating with a very specific kind of power. Think back with me on the whole of the story. At the outset, they are divinely guided in a way that was clear for them which way they were supposed to go, right? The Holy Spirit said, don't go this way, go this way. Then, in the talks with Lydia, it says that the Lord opened her heart. While in Philippi, the kingdom of God confronts the kingdom of darkness, and Paul exercises the demon. And when in jail, an earthquake comes to rescue them. Where did this power come from? It came from the active work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in a way that was clearly discernible, that the Spirit was acting on the Spirit's own agency. And at other times, clearly discernible that the Spirit was acting through someone else. But either way, it's clear it was still the Spirit. In your life, and on this journey that we're on, that Jesus called all of us as disciples to be on, do you ever feel like you need more power for it? You ever feel like you need more power for tomorrow? I do. Now, you might be saying to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm a Nazarene, and we don't talk about the Holy Spirit exactly like this. 
We say the Holy Spirit helps us in salvation. We say the Holy Spirit guides us through Scripture. We say the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. Does the Spirit do all those things? Yes. But the Spirit does more than that. The Spirit does today and can do through you the same kinds of things that the Spirit did in Acts chapter 16. If we want more of the Spirit. And let me tell you what that means, that the Holy Spirit can act in a tangible, discernible, concrete way where everybody steps back who was involved and says, now that could not have happened without the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of activity that we want to see God doing in our midst. A few years ago, I was having trouble with, um, with my computer. And um, so I called uh, customer support for, uh, I happened to have a Dell at the time. I know some of you are thinking, that's your problem. You bought a Dell. Uh, should have bought a Mac. Well, that's why I could afford a Dell, so that's what I got. But uh, in the course of that conversation, the instructions that the, the person on the other end were giving me were just not working. And, um, and so he asked if I, he could access my computer virtually. Now, I had heard that you could do that, but never had I actually had it done uh, with me before. And uh, if that's it, you've ever had that happen to you, I know then all of a sudden, in just a few minutes, like, that guy was on my screen in my computer, like, moving things around. And uh, I could see him moving the cursor and uninstalling certain programs and installing other programs and downloading things here and there. And sometimes, though, as we were talking on the phone while he was doing all this, he would ask me to do something instead of him doing it for me. And in doing that, I accidentally discovered, because I misunderstood something that he said, that I could override him anytime I wanted. Right? If he was moving the cursor this way and I wanted to go back over this way, I could do that. Right? And I was having a little bit of fun with that uh, at the time I was doing it. Of course, that's not to mention that I could simply have kicked him out at any moment with the push of a click of a button. I had to allow him in, and I could have just as easily kicked him out. But why would I have wanted to kick him out? Because in that moment, he knew far better than I did what he was doing to make my computer work the way it was intended to. You see, the spirit who knows more, is wiser, has better understanding, is more intelligent, is more mature, then any of us is there to guide and direct you and help your life work in the manner that God intended for it to work. That's why Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and be our companion to bring the very presence of Jesus into your existence. And if you are a person who has given your life to Jesus Christ and you are in the kingdom of God, you have entered into the domain of the power of the Spirit and that Spirit is now interconnected to your life. And they are there to empower you for the purposes that God has for you, including your participation in his mission, both as an individual and as Table Life Church. But it is still your life. It's not the Spirit's life. And therefore, on most occasions, the Spirit always defers to us. We have to be the ones to take the next step. So... We would like to end this morning by helping all of us think about what our next steps might be. When we look back at the whole of Acts 16, we see that this is the pattern of how God reaches out to us through his ministry. For instance, when Paul went to Macedonia instead of Asia, he took his next step. When God opened Lydia's heart and she believed, 
she took her next step. When God broke open the jail and the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? He took his next step. Sometimes our next steps don't seem as clear cut as Paul or Lydia's. Sometimes our next steps seem hard and even a little scary. But we must remember that God always has our best interests in mind in concert with his mission. In your program this morning, there should be a simple white note card there for each of you. If you don't have something to write on, you can all write with, you can always take notes on your phone. We would like for you to pull that out and on one side write down on this sentence. God has my best interests in mind. And on the other side, write down some possible answers to this question. What is the next step God is asking me to take to join him in his mission? It doesn't necessarily have to be something big. Sometimes we can get paralyzed by thinking that our next step has to be great. What is important is that whatever the next step is, that we take it. What is the next step that God is asking me to take to join him in his mission? Is there a place of openness I have found? Can I identify a person of peace? Is there someone that I simply need to talk to about my faith? Do I need to pray for someone or for someone's healing? Whatever it is, just write down what your next step might be to respond to the Holy Spirit's invitation in your life. We will give you a few moments. Sometimes our next steps might require some faith, but if you are ever struggling to take that next step, you can flip over your card and it will help you remember that God's way is the way to go. So would you pray with us? Lord, we come before you this morning and we just ask that uh, as we continue in our worship here, as we, as we uh, commune with you, as we take communion, and as that is a, a reminder to us of the call of the gospel, that you would speak to each of us, that you would help us know what is the next step that you're asking us to take to follow you in carrying out the very simple task that you, this very simple instructions that you gave us uh, to make disciples uh, as we go about our lives. Would you empower us for that? Would you give us courage? Would you, would you give us faith? Would you help us know the folks that we need around us to support us on that journey? And I pray that through these steps, these next steps, that all these good folks at Table Life take, that you would grow and multiply and extend your kingdom through this church, in this strategic region of this state. In your name we pray.